0: Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 10, The Inca Ascension Hello everyone, thank you all for joining in what will be our final episode this season. Or at least our final episode following the narrative. In case you forgot or missed it, Our next episode, airing in December, will be about answering any and all questions that you have about the show. There's still plenty of time to get your questions in, but I do ask that you get them in soon, so I have enough time to properly answer them. The later the question, the less fulfilling the answer might be. So get those questions in. After our December episode, I will be taking a break until February. This is partly because of the holidays and how crazy they are, but mainly because the show requires more research, and my busy schedule has not permitted me enough time to do the necessary digging. Thus, I will be reading and writing away for those seven-day weeks. So send your questions as soon as you can for our December episode. You can submit them on the show's Facebook page, on Twitter at Inca Podcast, or email incapodcast at gmail dot com. Now then, In episodes 7 and 8, we looked at the origins of the Inca according to tales passed down by the Inca to the Spanish chroniclers. Our task for this episode is to stay in the Cusco Valley, but wind back the clock before the Inca, and even before the Wari. We are going to take a look at how the Inca ascended based on archaeological evidence. There are several maps associated with this episode up on the website, ahistoryoftheinca.wordpress.com, and our direct link is posted in the description for this episode. Enjoy! We are back sometime between 200 and 600 A.D. during what is known today as the Coticali period in the Cusco Valley. And in this valley, we have three basins, Cusco, Oropesa, and Lucre. Several maps have been provided for you on the website, so you can look at the area in more detail. The name Coticali is simply the name archaeologists have given the style of pottery found in the Cusco Basin at this time. Black, sometimes red, geometrical lines on a cream colored background. Two rivers flowed through the Cusco Basin from the northwest and west, the Mayu and Safi, respectively. These two rivers joined to form the Watanay, which flows through the majority of the Cusco Valley. The valley was conducive to, for agriculture, with a good supply of fresh water thanks to these rivers. However, at this point, only the southern edge of the Cusco Basin was under agricultural production, as it was the flattest. The Cotacalli period polity was in firm control of the Cusco Basin. However, there were large chiefdoms to its west on the plain of Anta, as well as to the east in the Lucre Basin. At the same time, the site of Pucara was gaining power in the Altiplano. You remember Pucara. We discussed them in episode 5 when we talked about Tiwanaku. Well, during the Coticali period, ceramics from the Altiplano were making their way into the Cusco Valley. We know this because archaeologists have found the ceramics that fit the style of those produced at both Pucara and Tiwanaku. These ceramics, called Muyu Orco, have white, black, and orange paint on a polished, dark red background. Thus, it appears that the groups in the Cusco Valley were already beginning to feel the pressure from outside groups at this point. However, around 600 AD, ceramics started to come from another place, the Ayukuchu region. And who resided in that region? That's right, the Wari. With Wari ceramics coming in, the Muyu Orco style and the ceramics from the Altiplano disappeared. The Wari had arrived and were able to push influence from the Altiplano out of the valley. The Wari ceramics mostly appear in the Lucre Basin, where the Wari built Piquiocta, their expansive administrative center. However, the groups in the Cusco Basin just made Wari imitation ceramics and didn't get an administration center. Why was this the case? It is likely that the Wari didn't seek to build a center where a strong chieftain was in place. The Lucre Basin, though had a few groups, must have been more disorganized and Picacta was meant to organize the local groups. In the Cusco Basin, the chieftain must have been well organized and the Wari were able to turn the chieftain to their side and enlist them in production of ceramics. The Wari influence was thus greatest in the Lucre Basin, as not only Piquiacta was built, but also extensive canal systems and terraced farms. And though the Wari benefited from the increased maize production in the valley from both Cuzco and Lucre, they sought to establish themselves for a few other reasons. Piquiacta gave them entry to the tuber-producing and herding polities in the Villacanta Valley in the southeast, as well as the coca trade routes to the north. However, as we all know from episode 6, the Wari hold on the Cusco Valley would not last. Piquiacta would not even be finished. It would be abandoned by the Wari and then burned at the hands of the locals whom the Wari sought to control. Between 1000 AD and 1400 AD is the time period that is key to us. This is the time period which corresponds to most of the origin stories we discussed in episodes 7 and 8. However, this period is called the Kilke period, after the pottery that has been found. This is the period of state formation for the Inca, where they transform from just another chiefdom in just another valley into the dominant society, ready to springboard into other regions. This is seen as a very critical period by archaeologists, Want to know how the Inca state was formed before it expanded over the Andes. So when I say Kilke period, think about everything leading up to the rise of Pachacuti. As I said, the Kilke culture came about around 1000 AD, shortly after the Wari left the valley. The ceramics changed little, but what had changed was the population. The Cusco Valley increased after the Wari left, and local groups jostled for position. The southern part of the valley grew substantially, while the northern side of the Cusco Basin saw development as well. Remember, the northern side of the basin wasn't conducive to agriculture. However, with the installation of several canals, as well as terraced fields, a surplus of food was available, spurring population growth in the basin, as can be seen by yet another map on the website. This construction was thanks to the mass organization of rotational labor, that we've talked about before, called Mita. We will get into the weeds with Mita and what it meant for the Inca eco- economically and socially down the road. It has been at or near the center of many debates about the Inca and their society, and I hate to gloss over it because it is so important. However, to fully understand all sides of the argument over Mita, I need to do some more research. For now though, just remember that Mita played an important role in the formation of the Inca state, and that we will continue to see why Mita was so important to the Inca as we continue with later episodes. Now then, settlements in the Cusco Valley were positioned for production and economic purposes, not for defensive ones, as we would find in an area where there was much political strife or invasion from other groups. A depopulated zone was created in the Oropesa Basin, which consolidated the population into larger settlements in the Cusco Basin. This depopulated area between the Cusco and Lucre Basins suggests that the two had little in common in terms of traditions, which was a potential area for conflict. However, the Inca would attempt a lighter touch when bringing surrounding groups into their sphere of influence traveling immediately south of the cusco valley to the present-day province of paruro here there are no defensive settlements related to the kilke period that have been found there is also no evidence of fortresses at higher elevations and the area appears to have been populated by undefended villages there is also a large amount of kilke pottery present up to the apurimac river further south Archaeologist Brian Bauer suggests that the groups in this region were brought in early in the development of the state and without violence. One way that this may have been done was through marriage alliances. To the west and northwest were several groups that were brought in just like that. The Inca and Ayamaca established marriage alliances beginning with Quepec Yupanqui, the fifth ruler who married Curry Hilpe. The alliance continued with the marriage of Yawar-Wakak's marriage to Mama Chikiya. The Anta were another group that established a marriage alliance with the Inca when Viracocha Inca married Mama Rantakaya. Interestingly enough, the Inca, Ayamaka, and Anta all fought each other at one point or another in their histories. Yet with the marriage alliances to the Inca, the two other groups became subservient to them. In the north, we have the Vilcanota River, which flows through the Urubamba Valley. However, I'm going to call it what many people who travel through the area today call it, the Sacred Valley. Here, groups were either welcoming the newcomers into the valley or moving up the slopes to more defensible locations. These newcomers were, of course, the early Inca, and they were interested in terracing the lower levels of the valley to increase their agricultural surplus which they were able to do. To store this surplus, they created extra storage units called colcas. They also built state monuments as well as constructed roads through the valley. And when I say they, I of course mean the Inca accomplished these feats through the Mita labor system. It is in the Sacred Valley that another marriage alliance took place, this time between Inca Roca, the sixth ruler, and Mama Mica, whose father was the leader of the Wayakan, There was support from Mama Mika for being a political leader in her own right as well. Together, the two would expand the irrigation system in the Sacred Valley, making the precious resource of water more available in times of need. And it was certainly needed as there was a severe drought from 1250 AD to 1310 AD, at a time period where it is estimated that The Inca expansion and irrigation installation took place in the valley. However, we would be fools to believe that the Inca peacefully subdued all groups that they came across. If not for marriage alliances, the Anta and Ayamaca could have one day become subdued through bloodshed instead of festivities. Some groups were not so lucky. In fact, one such group was the Huayacan that I just previously mentioned. Though they were brought into the Inca fold peacefully, thanks to the marriage of Inca Roca and Mama Mika, they made the mistake of betraying Yawar Wakak during a struggle for dynastic succession. Backing the wrong horse, or maybe Lama would be more suitable in this case. Anyways, backing the wrong leader cost the Huayakan some of their lands, which Yawar Wakak took to build his personal estate. It is likely that some groups were, in a way, reconquered militarily so the Inca could exercise direct control over them. Groups were also brought in so the Inca could gain access to certain goods and to assert religious control. The Cuyo were an ethnic group also in the Sacred Valley. Cape Yupanqui entered into a military campaign against the group, when the Kuyu refused to supply exotic birds from the lowland jungles to Cuzco, But the campaign also had a religious purpose as well, as the Inca marched into the principal shrine and asserted Inti as a dominant deity over the local one. Yupanqui then installed his brother and political rival, Tarko Waman, as the head administrator over the province. And now we will turn to the east and southeast to the basin that I spent a majority of my time when I was in Peru Lucre of course we've talked about the Lucre basin several times before it is the home of Piquiacta of course but it was also home to two groups during the Kilke period the Pinagua and the Mohina the Pinagua likely inhabited the site of Chocapuccio the Mohina were on the southern side of the basin on the other side of the lake and possibly at the site that I surveyed, Minas These were two separate, but likely related groups that shared similar cultures, traditions, and enemies. Again, there was a depopulated zone between the Cusco Basin and Lucre Basin, signifying the gulf between the people living in the two basins. But actually, it wasn't entirely depopulated. In the Oropesa Basin was the site of Tipon. This was a fortified settlement to deter both the groups from Cusco and Lucre from invading. However, Tipan's fortifications would fall when Viracocha Inca arrived and conquered the site. However, the Lucre Basin would not fall to the Inca just yet. Instead, the Inca expanded their influence past the basin and to the people of Waru. This group was brought in with a marriage alliance, Meanwhile, military victory in the Sacred Valley, just to the north, completed the envelopment of the Lucre Basin. With themselves cut off, the Pinagua and Mohina were soon brought to heel by the Inca. With the incorporation of these final groups complete, the Inca had secured their heartland. Of course, when I say secure, you should take that with a grain of salt. There almost certainly was resistance and rebellions against the Inca rule from time to time. And some we will get to. But the key thing to take away is that by the time of Pachacuti's victory over the Chanka, the Inca were a well-organized state. This is somewhat a different picture than what was painted in the Chronicles. The Inca apparently had allies or subjects around them to fend off the Chanka invasion. That isn't to say that the Chanka threat wasn't real. The Chanka likely posed a very credible threat to the Inca state as it stood. However, we must realize that the stories may stretch the truth a bit in the favor of Pachacuti, and the oral histories may have been changed to benefit him. Consider this. Pachacuti was a usurper. We don't know if Inca Urco was truly a drunken fool, or if Pachacuti had the stories changed to make him out to be. Pachacuti's vision with Inti may have been a tool used to justify the overthrow of his brother and undercut his father's authority. It is even possible that some of Pachacuti's accomplishments were actually his father's. Because there are no written records that we know of, it is difficult to prove any of these theories and thus declare the oral histories wrong. But we can at least say this, that by the time of Pachacuti, the Inca state was on solid footing based on archeological evidence. The victory against the Chanka, though no doubt impressive, and Pachacuti's charismatic leadership were not the sole ingredients that catapulted the Inca to greatness. It was the foundation built over centuries that really allowed the Inca to become the most powerful civilization in all of South America. And this, my friends, is where we will leave the Inca for the time being. Their heartland is secured. When we return to the narrative, we will pick up where we left off. In 1438, fresh off his victory and crowned Sapa Inca, Pachacuti is ready to lead the Inca into a new era. Wait, did he just say 1438? That's right, dear listener. We are already in the 15th century, and Columbus would set sail in a mere 54 years to the New World. But don't worry, we have plenty to cover before the Spanish arrive in the Andes. Of course, next time we will have our questions episode, so please send in your questions so I have some time to research them. Again, anything that we've covered so far is fair game, as well as anything about the production of the show or about me, as long as it's not too personal. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you all next time.